start Zachariah this evening. One of the reasons that I wanted to do Zachariah is I've done it twice in the past at about seven-year intervals, and I haven't done a version of it that I'm terribly happy with, so I'm going to take another shot at it. And the other reason is that I've been reading the book Messiah Ben Joseph, and he's got some insights into Zechariah that I had not seen before. And so as we go through it, I will point those out as we get there. To refresh you on your history, Zechariah came to Israel along with the first wave of returnees from Babylon under Ezra. And the prophecy here is in the second year of Darius, which, according to these notes, is about 515 B.C. It's important to note as we go through this that the brief that Ezra has is he is going to be allowed to rebuild the temple, period. He will not be allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, just the temple. The walls of the city will not be put up until a little over 70 years later under Nehemiah. So what you've got is the first wave of returnees. They've got the bank stash that was given to them by Darius. In other words, they gave them a whole bunch of resources to include a lot of the stuff that was looted under Nebuchadnezzar. So their job is to rebuild the temple and reestablish life in Jerusalem. And one of the things that will happen in our reading tonight is there's a prophecy of Jerusalem being a city without walls. Most people, and it's probably correct, take that to be millennial kingdom stuff when the Messiah is reigning and there's no imminent danger anymore. It's also the case that under Zechariah, Jerusalem is going to be a city without walls. So I just found that kind of an interesting thought as we go ahead. The other thing about Zechariah that I find difficult is keeping the pronouns straight. It's kind of hard to tell who's who occasionally. And as we go through that, I will point those things out. And by the way, it isn't at all clear to the commentary I'm reading either. They said, we think this is what it means, but we're not sure. So with that, I am hoping to get through maybe three chapters tonight. They're short chapters, so we may do it. And you all are total introverts instead of rowdy people, so we may make it. He is listed as one of two prophets at this time in the book of Ezra. So Zechariah and Haggai are the two prophets that are operating at this time from Jerusalem during the return. You can also correlate some of this with the book of Ezra. Ezra is obviously talking about the history and the rebuilding and the genealogies and all that kind of stuff. So all of this is of a piece. So anyway, let's go ahead and start. And as I say, we're probably going to stop and stutter several times. So Zechariah 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, 
Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. All right, now that is a quotation within the prophecy. So in verse 4 where it says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Quote, this is the former prophets, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Close quotes. So Zechariah is speaking for God who is reminding them of what former prophets have said to their fathers. So we're at verse uh, four and a half. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so as he dealt with us. So the sense of the paragraph then is God is reminding Israel, Judah in this case, that he warned them in the past. They didn't pay any attention to him. And the things that he warned them about came to pass. And from exile, they cried out in repentance. One of the things that I will point you to is Daniel. Remember when Daniel uh, is reading the book of Jeremiah and he discovers that the 70 years decreed is up. What he does is he has this long prayer of repentance where he says, God, we're here because we didn't follow your commandments. We didn't keep your covenant. You are just. We are not. Please deal mercifully with us concrete example in Daniel of what's being talked about here in Zechariah. So now we get a second vision. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which was the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying. So what we have here is the first prophecy was in the eighth month, which is two months after the fall feasts. And then this one is in the 11th month, which is the month before Passover. So the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, I saw in the night and behold a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. By the way, the word there for sorrel is a guess. That's the only place in the Bible that word shows up. Some of your translations will have a brown horse, but nobody really knows. So he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So Zechariah looking at a man on a horse and a bunch of other horses in the area doesn't understand what's going on. And by the way, this is fairly typical of this part of the book. He keeps asking what's going on here. He's asking questions because he doesn't understand what he's looking at. 
when we get down to chapter 3, where we have Joshua the high priest, he quits asking questions. Commentary I read indicates that the reason he quit asking questions is because he knows what's going on. So verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So the idea here is the man on the red horse is the commander or the leader. And these other guys have gone out to patrol the whole earth and have returned to report. I have no idea, by the way, what the significance of the horse's colors are because the horse's colors in Revelation are significant. These may be significant too, but I just don't know what it is, and the commentaries I've read don't mention it. Verse 11, And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? You all know your history. Israel was sent into exile for 70 years because they had not given the land its Sabbaths. Every seventh year is a Shemitah and the land is to be given rest, which is to say you're not allowed to plow, you're not allowed to reap, you're not allowed to harvest. Everything that grows of itself, anybody can take. So if you own a vineyard or a field or whatever, as Ray once famously said, you're either going to grow food or you're going to grow weeds, but something's going to grow. And so you have this agricultural land that has been planted, and in the seventh year, stuff is going to grow, but the owner of the land is not allowed to profit from it. Allowed to walk out in his orchard and pick an apple and eat it, but he's not allowed to walk out into his orchard and pick a basket of apples and sell them. So the reason that Israel got sent into exile for 70 years is because God says you owe the land 70 years worth of Sabbaths. Since you won't give the land rest when you're living there, I will move you off of the land so that the land does get its rest. So we're all the way down to verse 13. And the Lord answered, Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. And disaster is a bad word. I would have used calamity. Unless the Hebrew says disaster, which I don't think it does. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built on it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So this is fairly typical. God raises up a Gentile nation when Israel, in his estimation, needs to be straightened out. 
and that Gentile nation comes in and he withdraws his hand from Israel so that they are not able to overcome their enemies. And they get taken into exile. What God says here is the problem with that is not that they took Israel into exile. That's what I told them to do. The problem is what I would call unnecessary roughness. They did far more damage than was necessary just to move people out. You've all been through the prophets. We just went through Ezekiel, and we had prophecies against the surrounding nations, Tyre and Edom and Moab and Egypt and so forth. And the central complaint against all those nations is when God was chastising his people, either through Assyria or Babylon, those nations then came in and took advantage and made the situation much worse. So God was not pleased. So the same thing here. These scouts, if you will, who have gone out to scout the land have found out everything's at peace, which is to say all of the Gentile nations are at peace. And God's saying, well, they're at peace because they have profited from the destruction of my people, and I do not approve of what they did, so they aren't going to be at peace much longer. So we're all the way down now to verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, those are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. That takes some unpacking. Obviously, biblical typology, horns are representative of power. So the first four horns are the nations who God has used to scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So that would have been the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians. That's who we're dealing with up to this point. Then we have the four craftsmen. And what the four craftsmen are coming to do is to terrify the four horns. It's payback time. And I don't know why it's translated craftsmen. Other translation are masons. Don't particularly know. Commentary was, and I'm not sure I buy it, but uh, the idea is agriculturally or in animal husbandry, a young bull will have its horns clipped. The idea there is the horns don't grow to be dangerous. And then obviously the next thing you do is put a ring in its nose so you can control the bull. The only reason I'm not buying necessarily the commentary is these animals with horns are not young. They are fully mature because they have taken out Israel. The other part of this is you have four horns which I am interpreting it as the four empires who have come against Israel and Judah, which would have been the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians at this point in the prophecy. 
correlating that with Daniel, you also have four empires. And that is Babylon, Medeo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. At this point in history, the four horns are past. In other words, these are four horns who in the past have done God's bidding. But there are also prophetically four horns, two of which have yet to show up, which is Greece and Rome. Line of commentary that believes the four horns are equivalent to the four empires in Daniel. And each of those four horns then gets taken out by a carpenter, where Babylon gets taken out by Darius, the Mede, and then Persia gets taken out by Greece, Greece gets taken out by Rome, and then Rome eventually falls to barbarians in the north. I can't say it's wrong. doesn't resonate with me, but that doesn't mean anything. So anyway, there's the horns and the carpenters, and the idea, of course, is that the carpenters are going to deal with the horns. It's specifically terrifying them. So now down to chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now remember, back in chapter 1, God said that there would be a measuring line stretched out over Jerusalem. So that's back in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Measuring line talks about surveying. That's what we're talking about. And the idea here where God stretches out a measuring line over Jerusalem can be one of two things. It can either mean he is measuring it for destruction, and that's what happens, I believe, in Ezekiel. So what happens in Ezekiel is he sends forth someone with a measuring line, and the idea they're measuring it for destruction. Here, the measuring is measuring it for prosperity. You all remember that God forbids the kings of Israel from counting his people, but God himself counts his people over and over again. What the whole book of Numbers is about. He just keeps counting them. And the rabbinic commentary on that is he is like a good shepherd who really likes his flock and just enjoys counting it. So it's a benign kind of a thing. When a man counts them, it is, these are mine. And God says, no, they're not. They're mine. And you don't get to count them. So what I'm interpreting here is the same metaphor where God stretches out a measuring line over Jerusalem as in, look at my city. Just like I am counting my sheep because I love them, I'm measuring my city because I enjoy it. So we have a surveyor going out to measure. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. This is another place where the pronouns are just squaggly. This 
angel who is running and saying to that young man, who is the young man? Two perspectives. Perspective number one is the young man is the surveyor. And so run and tell that surveyor that Jerusalem is to be a city without walls. Interpretation number two is the young man is Zechariah. As I said at the beginning of this, there's two possible interpretations to the bit of a city without walls. Interpretation number one is messianic era where you have the Messiah there and there's no need for walls because the Messiah is there and so forth. In other words, peace. Number two is Ezra does not have permission to rebuild the walls of the city. So the walls of the city are not going to be built till over 70 years later under Nehemiah. So the idea of Jerusalem shall be a city without walls could be referring to, okay, you guys just build the temple and be confident because I'll take care of you, even though the city has no walls. Interpretation number two is it's way in the future when warfare has ceased and everybody is at peace. The image is prosperity. The place is blossoming. Herds and flocks and people and everything is at peace and you don't need walls. God himself will protect you. And, of course, God is the source of your prosperity. But as I say, I do not know which scene applies here. Just have no idea. Could be both. Verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Now, this would indicate to me that the interpretation of a city without walls is the time between Ezra and Nehemiah. Because as part of this prophecy now saying to the exiles, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Because the exiles were taken into the north in Babylon, and the idea is, come on home. So up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. So the idea here is Israel has been scattered by God which they have. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Quotation marks, antecedents of pronouns and so forth are a bit confused there, at least as I read it in translation. But the sense of the prophecy is the nations having plundered Israel are at peace, resting from their plunder. God is going to stir them with a stick and you people need to come home because I am fixing to take care of these people and you don't want to be among them. And furthermore, the fact that they have treated you so poorly I regard as if somebody had poked me in the eye. Verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. 
Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. I am not sure who me is here. Is me the prophet or is me the angel of the Lord who's talking? The other thing that's interesting here is in verse 11, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. One of the things we've been talking about, in fact, we talked about it in Midrash, is the idea that it has always been God's plan to bring the nations into his kingdom. And Israel was simply the nation of priests who was supposed to go out and make disciples of all nations and bring them into the kingdom of God. And then we had the unfortunate incident with the golden calf, which is in this week's Torah portion, I believe. And instead of the whole nation being a nation of priests, you wound up just having a family of the Levites. So I read this as messianic kingdom time as a minimum, perhaps new heaven and new earth time, I don't know. But the idea is it has always been God's plan to bring the nations in. It is not a New Testament concept. So verse 11 again. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. And I don't know if that's Messiah's second coming, or new heaven and new earth. It could be either one. Verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The whole characteristic of this prophecy is God is ticked at the way his people have been treated, and he's fixing to make it right. Let's go on to chapter 3. Now, remember, I said at the beginning of this, in chapters 1 and 2, Zechariah is always asking questions. What is this? What's this all about? What's going on? No questions in 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, Joshua, the high priest. There are two historical mentions of Joshua as a priest. In Ezra chapter 3, Joshua the son of Josedek, and he is a priest, but it is spelled Yeshua as opposed to Joshua. Different Hebrew spelling. I looked at both spellings and it's different. But you also then have Joshua the son of Josedek spelled Joshua, as it is here in Zechariah in another book, and I forgot which one it was. So the commentaries all say that this is the Joshua who is a priest for Ezra. And I have no way of arguing with that, but as I say, the difference in spelling sort of, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's not what's going on here. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. One of the things that the commentary infers is since Zechariah isn't asking any questions, that he recognizes the people, which would lend weight to the idea that this is the Joshua who he knows. Doesn't ask any questions about it, whereas he's asked questions before. I could also see that as being Yeshua, as something future. And I'll show you why in a, in a minute. So Satan is standing there accusing him. The Lord rebukes Satan. And the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. And then, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So the brand plucked from the fire would be the high priest. And he's pulled out of what would be called tribulation. And is standing there. As Paul would say, you will be saved, but you will smell like smoke. So that lends credence to the idea that it's not the Messiah. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's a very common metaphor in Scripture is God will give you pure garments indicating that your sins are forgiven and you are now dressed in white as symbolic of being one who is without sin. The metaphor is very clear. In verse 5, Then I said, I am assuming I is Zechariah. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So you've got the Lord, you've got the angel of the Lord, you've got Joshua, and you've got Zechariah all observing this. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. There are more people standing here. And the right of access would indicate a high priest. Because the high priest is the only one who has the right of access into the Holy of Holies, which is the presence of God. So giving him the right of access among those who are standing here indicates that he is a high priest as opposed to only a priest. Verse 8. Hear now, o Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. So we have other people there. For they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, you have friends who sit before you and they are a sign. You have elders who are sitting before the Lord in the book of Revelation. I'm not pushing this in any way. I'm simply drawing your attention to things and your guess is as good as mine because I will not say that I know. But these are all the things that go through my mind as I read this. I see 
echoes of Revelation. I see echoes of Yeshua, the idea that he is crucified, which is anybody who's hung on a tree is a curse. And so having him come up into the presence of God and having his garments changed and so forth, taken out of his burial clothes, if you will, and put on a white robe. I could see this applying to Yeshua. Commentary sees it as applying to Joshua, who is the priest under Ezra. And of course, my servant, the branch, is a messianic term. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. Again, a stone is a messianic term. Yeshua is the rock. He's the rock of our salvation. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord host, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's a at least messianic, perhaps New Jerusalem metaphor. Now, a couple of things. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's become a stumbling block. You know, all those kinds of things. A metaphor for the Messiah. Servant is also a metaphor for Messiah. You have all over the prophets where the Messiah is referred to as my servant. So you've got three messianic terms there. You've got the servant, you've got the stone, and you've got the branch. Let's read 9 again. For I behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone of seven eyes. And that could also be the Holy Spirit because you have the seven spirits of God and you have the seven lampstands. And all, I mean, there's all sorts of metaphors wrapped up here. And I have got no idea whether this Joshua who is standing there is the Messiah or whether he is a precursor of the Messiah or whether he's just a plain old ordinary high priest just like everybody else. And you'll remember two or three times ago when we were talking about Psalm 110 and we were in the book of Hebrews and we were talking about the idea that in one man you have the line of Joseph, you have the line of David, you have a priest so you have a priest, you have a conqueror, and you have a king, all wrapped up in the same guy, Yeshua. And the reason that you need all three of those offices wrapped up in the same one is because as a descendant of Joseph, he is a firstborn bull, which is destined for sacrifice. As a descendant of Judah and a descendant of David, he is set up as a king. As a descendant of Joseph, he is also a warrior. And then finally, in order for him to do the sacrificial office that he has to do, which is to bring blood into the Holy of Holies in heaven, he also must be a priest, but he is a priest of a different order, Melchizedek as opposed to Aaron. So all of those things have to be married up in one individual for this to work.
So as I'm looking at this here in Zechariah, I'm seeing all of those messianic metaphors wrapped up in this little conference that's taking place, and I'm not quite sure what time frame it's talking about. If you believe that it's Joshua, the guy that was the priest with Ezra, God bless you. If you believe it's Yeshua, God bless you. I have no basis on saying it one way or the other. The commentaries that I have read go with Joshua, the priest with Ezra. It's obviously a metaphor of peace, and it's a metaphor of prosperity. When we get down to the gold lampstand, it's even going to get worse or better, depending on your point of view. What I'm calling this tangle of images gets even harder to untangle when we get down to the golden lampstand. So I'm not confused, but my uncertainty as to what we're actually dealing with as far as timelines are concerned will get nothing but worse. There is some wild stuff coming up.